You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. We turn next to the challenge brought to religious belief and religious claims by the verification criterion of meaning and by logical positivism and the attempts of various philosophers, some Christians, some not, some believers, some not, to meet that challenge in various ways without necessarily rejecting the criterion to try to somehow operate within it and save a role for religious claims. In 1955, British philosopher Antony Flew and Alastair McIntyre combined to edit a book called New Essays in Philosophical Theology. This was 1955. The Vienna Circle formed in the early 1920s. So it gives you an idea, I think, of the number of years in which this outlook really dominated the scene in American and British philosophy. The Flew and McIntyre book contained a discussion called Theology and Falsification. And the participants in the discussion were Anthony Flew himself, R.M. Hare, our philosopher of prescriptivist fame, and Basil Mitchell. Flew begins with a challenge to the religious believers. He says that religious claims make are not verifiable. They make no statements that could be falsified, or they make no statements such that any of our experiences would count against them or refute them. Believers always seem to find a way of accommodating anything that happens within their worldview. So he says, if they don't make any testable claims, then they are nonsense. Religious claims are simply nonsense. They're empty. And Flew cites John Wisdom's parable of the gardener, as it came to be called. And I'll read it to you because it's important, I think, that we get the parable in detail here. Once upon a time, two explorers came upon a clearing in the jungle. In the clearing were growing many weeds. One explorer says, some gardener must tend this plot. The other disagrees. There is no gardener. So they pitch their tents and set a watch. No gardener is ever seen. But perhaps he's an invisible gardener. So they set up a barbed wire fence. They electrify it. They patrol it with bloodhounds. But no shrieks ever suggest that some intruder has received a shock. No movements of the wire ever betray an invisible climber. The bloodhounds never give a cry. Yet still the believer is not convinced. But there is a gardener, invisible, intangible, insensitive to electric shocks, a gardener who has no scent and makes no sound, a gardener who comes secretly to look after the garden which he loves. At last the skeptic despairs. But what remains of your original assertion? Just how does what you call an invisible, intangible, eternally elusive gardener differ from no gardener at all? And Flew comments, thus someone may dissipate his assertion completely without noticing that he has done so. A fine, brash hypothesis may thus be killed by inches, the death by a thousand qualifications. That sentence became one of the most famous, I think, in the history of philosophy of religion, that believers' assertions don't really make any assertion in the end because they are continually qualified to such an extent that in the end nothing would count for and against them. Believers don't allow experiences to falsify their claims. If there's a lot of suffering in the world, this doesn't show that God doesn't love us. In fact, no matter what happens, believers continue to hold the same claims they did before, clearly not measuring up to the verification criterion of meaning. Now, one attempt to respond to this 
is offered in this book, the New Essays in Philosophical Theology book by D.M. McKinnon, later developed at much greater length by the philosopher John Hick. And the idea was to appeal to a kind of verification of religious claims that could take place in the next life. This came to be known as eschatological verification. What could verify, if not exactly falsify, Christian claims about life after death by observations or experiences that would follow the death of the body. McKinnon suggests something along these lines in the Flu Anthology in his essay called Death. His idea is, suppose you appear in a resurrected body at what seems to be a judgment throne. Someone shows you the events of your entire life, tells you about all of your thoughts and so forth, your private thoughts that nobody else would know about and so forth. That scenario at least seems to have meaning. Uh, most people think they can imagine such a scenario. Maybe you've seen the bumper stickers that say, Jesus, don't leave earth without him. The idea being that once you leave, you might have to appear and um, you might need an advocate at that point. So if, if verifiability of a claim is just verifiability in principle or a, a possible way of verifying, you remember the craters on the other side of the moon, then why can't this count as a verification of Christian beliefs? You might think, well, it only verifies the existence of an afterlife, but suppose you have excellent reasons for thinking that at this uh, moment the person you're speaking with is Jesus. You have confirming evidence, maybe if not absolute verification, and he says, the scriptures have told you all about me, and they are true. Would this verify their authenticity? Well, perhaps. So there was this thought that even accepting the verification criterion of meaning, you could still preserve the meaningfulness of religious claims. There were, of course, some criticisms of this view, some objections to it. For one thing, some religious claims seem pretty difficult to verify, that God is a trinity of persons, for instance, and that all the persons equally are divine and some of the other statements of the creeds of the church, or that God was thinking about us before the world began. You know, again, perhaps if you have kind of a, a basis of authority for this and you have good reasons for thinking this person is divine and so forth, maybe that would count. But this gambit was wholly unconvincing to the positivists, like Anthony, Anthony Flew himself. In fact, he criticizes it here in this uh, very volume. He says it presupposes the meaningfulness of resurrection of the body, for instance, and that you would still be the same self at that after death, even with the new body and so forth that you were before, that after-death experiences confirm claims of this kind of magnitude and so forth. And, and so he finds this completely implausible and subjects it to a certain amount of ridicule in the book. Another attempt, and this is again in the same uh, essay, Theology and Falsification, the same discussion, R.M. Hare suggests that um, he takes a cue from Carnap's suggestion that religious belief is a particular attitude toward life, a kind of lens through which we see things. And we don't really see the lens, but we see through it. We see the things in our experience through the lens. So Hare suggests that um, religious faith is a kind of outlook. He calls it a blick. He, he makes up a technical term, a blick, B-L-I-K. And a blick is supposed to be a kind of way of an attitude toward life or a way of viewing things in your experience and so forth. So religious, the religious blick will be a kind of optimism. Things are going to turn out okay in the end and so forth. And um, one advantage of this, of, of Hare's view, is that it can at least explain why religious faith seems to influence everything in a believer's life, the way everything is viewed. 
Blicks are based in feelings, emotions, passions, desires, and so forth, rather than in co something cognitive. Hare says, flu has shown that a blick does not consist in an assertion or a system of them. So in other words, he concedes that. He, um, he accepts the verificationist criterion and concedes that uh, religious faith is not an assertion or a series of assertions. Nevertheless, it is very important to have the right blick, maybe, uh, for instance, a sane blick rather than an insane one. Uh, it was Hume who taught us, says Hare, that our whole commerce with the world depends upon our blick about the world and that differences between blicks about the world cannot be settled by observation of what happens in the world. So the fact that you can't verify them or falsify them is to be expected given the kind of thing that they are. Now, of course, this view has difficulties of its own, the main one being that there's no cognitive content now to religious beliefs. They make no claim of or no truth claims. And secondly, Hare suggests there's no criterion for choosing one blick over another one apart from personal preference, let's say. Um, and this doesn't seem to capture how believers think about the dogmas of faith or about their own religious beliefs. As even Flew can see, he puts it here, if Hare's religion really is a blick involving no cosmological assertions about the nature and activities of a supposed personal creator, then surely he's not a Christian at all? He ends that with a, a question mark, but obviously it's a rhetorical question. Um, Flew himself sees that this can't capture at least what Christians think they believe um, when they put forward religious claims. Another effort within the same volume, fi the final effort was a uh, final entry here, was by Basil Mitchell. And Mitchell proposes that we think about uh, religious claims in a, a broader way as kind of large hypotheses about the world, um, operating more or less like a kind of scientific hypothesis of, of large magnitude. And I think here Mitchell is anticipating the later shift toward evaluating even scientific theories as a whole, rather than trying to test the individual statements of the sciences. Um, so he treats religious claims as verifiable in a way by their overall explanatory power with regard to our knowledge and experience. Uh, he accepts a kind of empiricism then, but not the verificationist criterion of meaning. He just rejects it. This He, he thinks this shows that some things will confirm religious beliefs, other things will tend to count against them. Normally, just as in science, one anomaly or one difficulty isn't going to make you give up the whole theory. Uh, you, will, you will try to accommodate it in various ways. I mean, maybe if, if you accumulate enough of these, you will eventually have to shift away. You'll say, well, I think the theory just isn't going to work out. It can't handle these things. It doesn't fit. But, um, but it's a, a larger kind of project. So with Mitchell, you get a kind of return to realism and to foundationalism and so forth. And I think this was a promising suggestion in many respects. Mitchell himself wrote a book along these lines that was early entry in this project. And the project, I think, has recently been taken up in much greater depth and rigor by Richard Swinburne, whose earlier work was in the philosophy of science. And now I'd just like to say a little bit about having shown different ways of responding to verificationism, what else was going on in this time, during this time in which logical positivism was so dominant. Moral claims and religious claims were living on pretty thin gruel indeed, I think, in this time. Normative ethics had been almost abandoned completely in respectable philosophical circles, or maybe it was practiced furtively in some remote recesses of the ivory tower. Moral language, though, retained at least some level of respectability, however weakened in mainstream philosophy because of the non-cognitivist interpretations. 
but religious language found very few supporters. Catholic philosophers, for whom moral and religious claims are pretty important, responded to the challenge of positivism in various ways, though few opted, I think, just for a simple accommodation. They founded the American Catholic Philosophical Association, in fact, as a forum for discussion of themes and thinkers that had ceased to appear in the program of the American Philosophical Association, the secular counterpart. So one effort was the continued development, which had been going on for many years, of course, uh, a continuing development and defense of Aristotelian Thomism, which involved focusing on the original texts of Aristotle and of St. Thomas Aquinas, and the system reflected in those. There were a lot of disagreements among various kind of schools or, or branches of Thomism, but there was general agreement about the best account of God and the world, and certainly general agreement about main outlines of metaphysical commitments, agreement about realism, and so forth. So the idea was to build a realistic metaphysics, accommodating the new insights from the sciences and so forth, based on common sense claims about the natural world and confidence in the applicability of Aristotelian categories to reality, that is, categories like substances and accidents, causes, bodies, things in themselves, and so forth, even the divine mind. Now, this seemed hopelessly naive to some. We had the advent of scientism and logical positivism, and some thought after Kant, after Immanuel Kant, how can we just assume that our categories reflect the nature of the world outside of our experience, the nature of the things in themselves. Isn't this simply to fall back into the kind of dogmatic slumber from which Kant said that David Hume had awakened him? In the background, I think, of this approach, though, has always been, not exactly an assumption, maybe, but a commitment to theism, the sense that, just I think as in the case of Thomas Reed's common sense realism, there wasn't a lot of anxiety about the possibility of evil demons or chances of being severely deceived or something. One reason is we don't have much of a choice, of course. We have to trust our reason. It's all we have, and we can't really help it. And the use of our reason leads us to think that there might be such a being as God, or that there probably is, or even certainly is. So the author of our reasoning faculties is also the author of nature, is a uh, morally perfect being, and so forth. So that reinforces our sense that we can trust in our reason. Uh, so I think in the background, of many versions of realism and this confidence in reason has been the sense that it won't lead us astray, that the world is such that it will correspond to the ways we think about it because the world and our minds come from the same source. However, some philosophers at this time turned away from traditional Catholic interest in Thomism and in Aristotle and so forth and turned instead toward the continent. British and American philosophy, since it was so dominated by this positivist outlook, was very uncongenial, and some wanted to be with the times, as it were, and to uh, try different approaches. And so some turned, for instance, to uh, philosophy of Husserl and Heidegger, the kind of phenomenological tradition, which initially, I think, seemed very promising. It was an effort to respond to Kant's problems about ultimate reality by just attending to our consciousness of the things bracketing, in Husserl's uh, way of putting it, bracketing all these other metaphysical questions for now and just try to allow the things to speak directly to us in a way, direct commerce with them. There, there was a slogan, back to the things themselves. However, eventually, phenomenology also found it very difficult to bridge this gap between, that it's self-acknowledged, between minds and things and in a convincing way, and it became increasingly anti-realist, I think, or idealistic in its overall outlook. 
Some also turned to existential philosophy, especially taking inspiration from Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher of the 19th century. Some even read Jean-Paul Sartre, which was uncongenial to Christianity, but was a way of, of unpacking existentialism. And at least, the idea was, I think, that at least those thinkers were concerned with the individual person and with the meaning of our life, the decisions we make, and the importance of those, took it as it were, took us seriously in our hopes and fears and so forth, in our religious attitudes. Some developed, Bernard Lonergan, for instance, developed kind of a new version of Kantianism, kind of Kantian interpretation of Thomism, trying to, to offer kind of transcendental Kantian type arguments for some of the categories that are required by thought or are assumed in the background of our thinking. Because at least Kant had left a place, in a way, for categories like God, freedom, and immortality. It's not all one could hope for, of course, because Kant's arguments were, and are, unpersuasive to many philosophers. And Kant allows no mind-independent access to objective reality. Right? Kant's uh, notoriously uh, skeptical, agnostic, anyway, about the things in themselves. So this was also not that attractive to some, but many did turn in this direction. The third possibility was to try to adapt analytic philosophy or analytic methods in philosophy to other purposes. And I would say this was certainly a minority position among Catholic thinkers. Early practitioners were the British philosophers Peter Geach and his wife Elizabeth Anscombe. The Protestant philosophers, those broadly speaking in the Reformed tradition of Christianity, tend to be mostly trained in, that were trained anyway in England and in the U.S., were trained in analytic philosophy and analytic methods. And um, some of these sought to defend traditional metaphysical claims, traditional religious claims as rational, if not necessarily unavoidable. Some turned to process philosophy of the 20th century philosopher Alfred North Whitehead as a way of recasting religious claims within what was still a metaphysical system. Some turned to a kind of Christian existentialism. But many of these Protestant philosophers found both process philosophy and continental philosophy obscure and unconvincing. They also considered Thomism to be outdated, philosophically unpersuasive, and theologically uncongenial. I'm thinking of, there are several in this category, I suppose William Alston, George Mavrodis, Alvin Plantinga, Nicholas Wolterstorff, and so on. Now when positivism began to fall apart, uh, as I suggested in the 60s or so, these analytically oriented philosophers found it easier than most, I think, to insert themselves into the philosophical mainstream. Reformed and evangelical philosophers founded the Society of Christian Philosophers. It has its own journal, Faith and Philosophy, uh, still going strong. However, in the end, I think ultimately, the memberships of the American Philosophy Association, the, the secular version, the ACPA, the Catholic Philosophers Association, and the Society of Christian Philosophers um, have evolved over time in, in recent years to include a greater variety of philosophical approaches and interests and outlooks. In fact, many philosophers today are members of all three of those groups, as well as a more specialized um, societies in their own fields of research. So there has been a turn away from the idea that, that somehow positivism positivism and the verificationist project and so forth has to be accommodated even by religious believers and a turn more towards uh, a return, you might say, to earlier methods of, uh, of research, of a kind of realist assumptions, of analyzing religious concepts to decide what's entailed by them, 
of responding, especially a kind of negative apologetical task of responding to objections and criticisms from um, atheists, uh, philosophers, secular philosophers, and so forth. And this project has been um, taken up with enthusiasm. There's a, a, a burgeoning field now of philosophy of religion, which um, had almost ceased to exist in the 1950s when Ayer wrote his challenge and Flew takes it up in um, New Essays in Philosophical Theology. Richard Swinburne, there are differences of approach. Richard Swinburne wants to view religious belief on this model of a, a large scientific hypothesis or a large hypothesis or worldview, arguing that religious believers need to show not necessarily that, um, that the Christian worldview is more probable than not, but that it's more probable than its alternatives. That is, it's more probable than naturalism as an overall worldview. It captures our experience and our knowledge better than the competing alternatives. Uh, philosophers like Alvin Plantinga, now here at Notre Dame, have a different approach and believe that um, that, that project is unlikely to succeed or to be persuasive, convincing, and have turned instead to a different model, treating belief in God as, as a basic belief within a kind of overall foundationalist picture of belief, that as something that most believers um, accept, but not on the basis of, of evidence or other beliefs, but just accept in a kind of immediate way, or they accept beliefs anyway that entail that there's a God, beliefs like God is present with me, or God is speaking to me now, or or God um, disapproves of what I've done or something, and that would entail the existence of God. So there's a, a huge variety. Um, Thomism, of course, continues to be developed by many, by Ralph McInerney and others here and elsewhere. Existentialism, phenomenology, and so forth have also um, continued to flourish. So there are many efforts to craft a kind of overall outlook and, and philosophical framework for religious belief. Um, it would be nice to think that the, um, that the downfall of positivism was in part because of the, because religious believers, Christian believers in particular, rose up and rejected it altogether. I mean, as, as uh, Flew says to Hare, if he doesn't think it makes any assertions, maybe he's not a Christian at all. Or if these beliefs don't make assertions, they're not meaningful. Um, what Christian philosophers might have done would be to, to perform a kind of flip flipping of that argument around, a kind of modus tollens on it. That is, if Christian claims are meaningful, and they are, then the verification criterion is the wrong criterion of meaning and should be rejected. Unfortunately, I think religious believers were often very timid about making that kind of an effort, making those kind of bold claims. Alvin Plantinga once wrote a little essay called Advice to Christian Philosophers, which was really just to encourage believing philosophers to be a lot more courageous about and bold and so forth about defending their beliefs, or beliefs that would naturally fit with their faith. One way, I think, in which analytic philosophy, in, in a way, or the sort of science as a model for doing philosophy, one way in which that has uh, won the day, one respect in which it's won the day, is that I think all the philosophers working today, and this includes uh, Christian and Catholic philosophers and so forth, think of themselves many times as working within a kind of common project with colleagues and so forth who are like-minded, developing, working out a kind of common program or theory, each person kind of contributing their own piece of it and so forth. So I think in that respect, where it's not philosophy isn't just a great mind like a Hegel 
and then Hegel's disciples and so forth, just holding forth about things. Instead, it's conceived of philosophy, I think, as a project, is often conceived more on the kind of the model of science, uh, scientists working in a lab, offering support for various pieces of a theory and um, putting it all together into a coherent system. I think that's left its mark on the practice of philosophy and the self-understanding of almost all contemporary philosophers. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.